0: This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vianne, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of January 9th, 2023, happy new you to you. Here are some top stories. Let's hear in-depth from the new governor of Arizona. Here's Lauren Gilger.
1: Governor Katie Hobbs has been in the office a little over a week, and she's deep into the job already. After pledging to be bipartisan, the Democrats' first state-of-the-state address angered some Republican lawmakers so much they walked out during the speech. She has issued several executive orders, one designed to protect LGBTQ state workers, has led to threats of a lawsuit. And we'll learn even more about her intentions when Hobbs releases her first budget later this week. From public education to abortion rights, the former social worker's priorities though are clear and riling up her conservative opponents. This was what she's been waiting to do, she told me, following a long and bruising campaign against Carrie Lake. Up against the charismatic former news anchor, Hobbs was seen as weak, often described as a timid campaigner. She notoriously refused to debate her opponent and faced a deluge of criticism from all sides. Polls had her down throughout much of the election season, and many were surprised when she came out on top if only by 17,000 votes. So what was going on behind the scenes when all of that was happening? And what led Hobbs to this position to begin with? I sat down with her on the ninth floor just a few days after she moved in to find out, beginning with what it felt like to be in that office for the first time.
2: It is surreal, but also, like, I just, I, I planned for it, I prepared for it. Um, I knew I was going to be here. And so it's just like this moment of... Yeah, we did that. And now we have a lot of work to do, which, you know, the the work of the campaign was
1: to get to the work that, that I wanted to do. And so I'm very excited. Okay, so then let's back up and talk a little bit about what got you here? I mean, this is a a, a lifelong journey in some ways, I'm sure. Um, And I think it's interesting because most people are not from here in the sense that most people are not born and raised in the valley, but you were, you grew up in Tempe, right? Tell us a little bit about, you know, your impressions of this city, having lived here your whole life, how much it's changed.
2: Um, Yeah, growing up here, it it has changed a lot. When when we moved to Tempe, there was nothing but cotton and cornfields to the south and east of us, and it's grown so much. And being born here I didn't necessarily want to stay until I did. And I took a job where I just started getting more involved in policy. And then I felt more of a community. Like sometimes Arizona doesn't feel like a community. And then it did. And so, um, yeah, I'm an Arizonan and I'm proud of it and really glad to be in this moment right now.
1: So let's talk about that work. Um, I mean, I think every profile that you'll read about you mentions that you're a social worker. You've been a social worker for a long time, since 1992, right? You worked at the Sojourner Center, one of the biggest domestic violence shelters in the in the country. I want to talk a little bit about what led you there. Did you always want to go down that road?
2: I, I got to college not knowing what I wanted to do except to help people. And, and I think that so much of it stems from how I grew up. My parents were middle class, but there were a periods of struggle. And during those times, uh, experienced a lot of just shame about the, the support and assistance that my family was on, like food stamps. Um, but then also just a lot of love and support from church community and specifically the church we belong to, but then the larger just community around my parents, um, from that faith, it was Catholic. And, and I just really had a sense of belonging there. Um, early on, my parents were very involved. I think that had so much impact on, you know, the, the value of service and, and, and belonging to a community and giving back to your community. And so I knew I wanted to help people and I, don't think I knew there was a career of social work when I got to college, and as soon as I figured it out, I was like, oh yeah, this is what we're gonna do, so.
1: So I wanna talk then about how that's carried through your career. It sounds like maybe your faith was was driving this for you. You, you were raised Catholic, as you said. Did that play a role?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I call myself a social justice Catholic, and I think really um, people that were some of my role models, Mother Teresa in particular,
1: uh, just really impacted me a lot. So as you sort of transitioned into politics, how did that happen? Like, did you enter? So it doesn't sound like you entered social work uh, expecting to go into politics one day. Where did this come from? It was probably the last thing I thought
2: I would do. And I can say... As a high school student and college student, I am absolutely a joiner. I was in leadership in every single club I belong to. Um, and then when I left college, I kind of didn't ever translate that into real life politics. And I probably I wouldn't even have known how to get involved in politics. And so I just went about my career as a social worker. And somewhere along the way, I started getting involved in more policy level advocacy um, when I was at the Sojourner Center. And you know, had a moment where I made that connection between electoral politics and policy. And if you can't change the policy, uh, and it's really frustrating. And if you've watched the legislature at all, you know that that legislative change is very incremental and very slow and very small. But from the outside, it's always hard. It's really hard to impact that. And so I'm like, well, if we can't change the policy, we can change the people making it. And so um, I ran for office, uh, never, never to run for something else, always just to help people and and further the work that I was doing and and do some of that on a systems level rather than individual level.
1: I want to ask you about the big issue where you talk about your work in social work a lot is abortion. Um, and obviously, we're in an incredibly tumultuous moment with abortion in politics and in policy here in the state. The appeals court decision, it seems, has changed your, your projection going forward. You're not going to call the special session on abortion at this moment, but you've said you want to continue fighting for abortion rights. I'm interested as a Catholic, um, how you sort of reckon with that and what your philosophy is there.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, um, the social justice Catholic was, was, um, for reason I think the issue of access to reproductive healthcare is an issue of justice. Um, and that it's so much an issue of women's a- autonomy. Um, so I, you know, I'm sure the Bishop would disagree with me on, on, on this position and, um, perhaps, you know, not allow me to receive communion, but I that's that's not I'm not gonna back down because of that. So, you know, I during the campaign talked a lot about my own experience with having a miscarriage and needing a DNC, which is in effect an abortion and that this, even the 15-week ban, so we're, we're now not in the territory of having a full ban, but there's a 15-week ban. Even that has caused um, a lack of access to reproductive health care for, for people who need it, that are experiencing miscarriage or other complications of pregnancy. Um, I heard a story from a therapist who had a victim of incest that was so traumatized by the experience that she didn't recognize her pregnancy until after 15 weeks. So it's off the table for her. I I fully believe this is a decision that belongs between a a patient and their doctor, and that there's no one-size-fits-all government restriction that is going to allow doctors to provide the care they need in every situation. So we have to do more to, to make sure that there's more access.
1: What's on the slate? What can you do here?
2: Well, I think I'll things are pointing to a ballot measure in 24. Um, I don't anticipate this legislature um, reversing course on
1: the, the restrictions that have been put in place in Arizona. But this is one of, it sounds like, many issues to you that is really personal
2: oh yeah i mean so i talked about my own story but working in a shelter with victims of domestic violence who who routinely part of the abuse they experienced was um sabotage over their birth control forced pregnancy forced abortion Um, they didn't have that autonomy and something that's such a personal decision when you decide to become a parent um, it's also a really important economic decision for most um, women and families
1: You were elected secretary of state under relatively normal circumstances, but then things very much changed after the election in 2020 um, with election denialism, with former President Trump. And you were at the heart of a lot of that. I know you received death threats, and I know that you have personal security now. Is that right?
2: Uh, Well, yeah, I have a... a A state detail um, that is given to the governor. Um, But I had personal security during the campaign as well.
1: And as Secretary of State?
2: Um, There were a couple of times when threats really escalated that the governor ordered a DPS detail, um, but it was very short-lived. And so we, we engaged private security, who were with me um, in whatever capacity, so whether it was the campaign trail or
1: in official duties, um, because there was no other option. I mean, so that's like a drastic thing. Like I can't imagine that in my own life, right? Like having security detail around because people are actually threatening to kill me. I mean, you have kids who are, I mean, they're older, but they're, you you have a family. Like, what was this like personally? Like how did this change your day-to-day life?
2: So, I think in terms of just thinking about, oh my God, I'm in this situation because there's been all these threats. If I thought about that all the time, I would have never left my house, as probably most people would. Um, You know, I I just, um, like, it's, I don't want to say it's something that we live with because that minimizes it. And it's not okay that that's the reality now. But, I wasn't going to let it deter me from doing the job I felt the voters elected me to do, um, and in many ways it just hardened my resolve. and um, And I worry honestly more about the impacts on my family um, and their safety. I have an identical twin sister, and sometimes I worry about her and just the the, the other people that don't have access to. I mean, I we engage private security for me because we had to, but what about? People on my campaign, if something happened, he was focused on me and he wasn't going to worry about anyone else. Uh, And people that are in that line of fire because of the work they do or, you you know, it's it's not okay that that's where
1: we are right now. Right. That says a lot about politics today. Right. Um, But I wonder, like a lot of election workers, a lot of election officials, a lot of politicians in general, especially at the local level, just sort of said, like, I'm out. I don't want anything to do with this. I mean, understandably, right, when you're facing death threats, why do you think it's worth it? Like, why did it harden your resolve, as you said, as opposed to saying, Yeah, I don't want anything to do with this?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, um, I think about the election officials who left office in really unprecedented numbers. And between the 2020 election, and the 2022, we had three recorders, three resign, I think some of what they were dealing with is politics from boards of supervisors of different parties, or even the same party, but they were trying to toe the line of this election denial, and it just made it too complicated for them. Um, I have a great team around me. And I, I also believe that the people of Arizona were relying on me to do my job. Uh, they still are and, and not give up. And I think I think it speaks to a lot of who I am but I don't I don't give up and um if I commit to something I'm going to see it through.
1: You never considered backing out, resigning, getting out of it?
2: No. No, and part of that is I knew that's what they wanted and it would it would make them think that they were right and they're not. They're just they're they're either lying or being misled by the people that are lying and um I'm not going to let
1: that win. So everybody has a coping mechanism. What's yours?
2: I run, and uh, I, I have a love-hate relationship with running. It's, but it's 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 a love relationship right now. It's it's, and I don't I have, I have no more alone time. Um, I'm always with somebody, uh, whether I'm you know being driven somewhere or so. Running is the time I get to spend alone.
1: Fair enough. So then lastly, I want to talk a little bit about the campaign. You were harshly attacked during this campaign, not just from your opponent, but from, you know, all sides, like for not debating, for, you know, dodging the media. There were headlines like, where is Katie Hobbs? What do you make of that? Like how you chose to run this campaign and the question of transparency? Well,
2: I think the thing that is the most hard to reconcile about that whole thing is that I would be sitting in front of reporters, talking to reporters, and they'd be asking me like, why aren't you out talking to reporters or out in communities? And they would be covering me at community events or whatever. So it just was like this narrative that wasn't real. And it was really hard to tune out that noise and just stay focused on the plan that we knew that we had to stick to and that we were running the campaign that was gonna win. Uh, something that um, I've been pretty disciplined about being able to do to just be able to state like we're getting through this really tough thing so we can get to
1: do the work that we want to do and that we need to do. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you plan on approaching the media transparency differently in the office now that you're in it and you don't have to campaign anymore?
2: I mean, I'm coming into this office with an
1: imperative to increase transparency and we're
2: figuring out you know, how that looks in terms of, of media access. Certainly you wanna be more accessible than the previous governor. You know, The staff I have on board here, in terms of the stuff that is all behind the scenes that you don't necessarily see in public, but um, response to inquiries that are coming like a mile a minute at this moment, uh, response to public records requests. And we've always had that responsiveness in the Secretary of State's office. Um, and so certainly that is going to continue. Yeah.
1: How do you think or do you worry that this affected the way that people view your leadership style or what is your leadership style? How, what do you want people to know about that?
2: Um, you know, I think that certainly the way the race was covered um, affected some people's perception. There are certainly a lot of people now who are like saying you were right. You were doing the right thing all along. And I think that says a lot right there about my leadership style. And, and I don't mean to say I'm not someone who's who's not willing to listen to constructive criticism. I think that's always important and not to surround yourself by people who are just going to always tell you yes, but who are going to tell you what you need to hear. But at the same time, balancing that with like knowing what is the noise that you have to tune out, um, which is really hard sometimes. And then having that resolve to
1: stick to that, that decision once you once you made it you're also the the fifth female governor of the state of Arizona and and Arizona has this really long line of, of strong female leadership here I wonder if you think in the current landscape does that mean anything to you does it matter
2: it, it does I think that at the same time that you know the campaign was so hard and I think it was harder for me especially as a woman and it sometimes I, I think it would be hard to tell other women they should run for office. I feel really proud to be a part of that legacy in our state, and I wish I had the chance to talk to former Governor Mofford and ask for her advice. I sit at her desk. Um, her desk was in my office, in the Secretary of State's office, and I asked them to move it up here. So, And uh, I just inherited uh, former Governor Napolitano's veto stamp, so it has a place on Rose Mofford's desk. So,
1: All right, Governor Katie Hobbs, thank you so much. Thank you.
0: And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. How has disinformation and misdirection shaped the Grand Canyon? The show's Mark Brody has that conversation.
3: Well, as you know, I'm uh, working specifically on the Grand Canyon, and really, uh, once you dig into the history of the Grand Canyon, you find that the history involves quite a lot of uh, uh, misinformation and rhetoric around environmental issues uh, as people have tried to exploit and use the Grand Canyon and to, to share as well as to enjoy it. One of the motivations for me to uh, be thinking about this project was uh, an experience that I had at the Grand Canyon, uh, where I was actually going to the site where this uranium mine is located uh, inside the Grand Canyon. You can still see the remnants of the mine. It has been cleaned up by the National Park Service and by uh, federal taxpayer money, but you can still see the uh, remnants of this uranium mine. and I was there uh, with a spotting scope to try to see some of the uh, uh, human artifacts that you can find there. And uh, some tourists uh, saw me and uh, asked me what I was looking at. And uh, I said, well, I'm looking at the remnants of the uh, old uranium mine that used to be here. And they looked at me with horror and uh, uh, said, how could you let that happen? Because they recognized that I seemed to be a local here and uh, they seemed to sense, I think, that someone that's local should protect this place. Uh, I had to laugh because uh, they were probably uh, old enough that they could have voted on Uh, some of the uh, policies that allowed that to happen, whereas this had all happened before I was even born. So let me ask you about
4: one of these incidents uh, from many decades ago, which involves the announcement of a hotel that was going to be built into the Grand Canyon. Is that right?
3: Yes, that's correct. And uh, this information comes from uh, Michael A. Amundsen, a historian at Northern Arizona University. He wrote an article called Mining the Grand Canyon to Save It, the Orphan Load Uranium Mine and National Security and this was a great article about this uh, history of uh, an existing uranium mine company uh, that was already mining inside the grand canyon outside of the national park current zone where currently the current limit was in the 1960s and they wanted to continue mining underneath The Grand Canyon National Park. And at first there was quite a bit of opposition to this. And uh, uh, in order to try to distract people from that, what they proposed instead was building a very large luxury hotel with Olympic size uh, swimming pool at the bottom of it that would cascade down into the Grand Canyon itself. And uh, this was uh, published in a newspaper and uh, received quite a lot of opposition and people called their congresspeople and uh, fought the hotel, which was never actually a real plan to actually build or construct. And uh, uh, this allowed the continuation of the mining to continue underneath the Grand Canyon National Park area. So was the thinking
4: then that by proposing something so outlandish and so detestable to so many people that the actual mining, which a lot of people didn't want to continue in the first place, that maybe by comparison seemed less bad and was seen to be okay?
3: Correct. Well, I think actually the better way to think of it is that uh, uh, it really just distracted people from the mining. I think that the mining itself did not get as much attention as the potential hotel did. What other instances have
4: you noticed of maybe disinformation or specific rhetoric being used around environmental issues, uh, specifically around the Grand Canyon?
3: One of the other big ones uh, lately has been a proposed uh, project of development uh, called the Escalade Project, uh, which is uh, designed to uh, build a tramway down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon near the confluence of the Colorado River. And uh, this is proposed on a Navajo nation land, and it was proposed to the Navajo people. And so it uh, has an element of desirability because it would bring economic development and jobs to Navajo Nation. But I think often uh, the extent of the jobs was misportrayed and often it was compared to other types of activities that already exist in and around the Grand Canyon. Do you see the kinds of of rhetoric
4: and the kinds of discussion about these kinds of projects around the Grand Canyon? Are they terribly different than the kinds of conversations and the kind of rhetoric we see around development projects outside the Grand Canyon, just sort of in, in general life?
3: I don't think they are very different. I think they're very, very much the same. Uh, It's just that the Grand Canyon is a much more visceral uh, experience for many people, and they recognize the wrongness of development a little bit more clearly. Uh, But I do think that uh, the general arguments and uh, the rhetoric that are used uh, are very much the same.
4: Well, so given, as you say, the the visceral reaction, sort of the maybe protective feeling that a lot of people feel for the Grand Canyon, does that mean that development projects maybe have to be discussed and proposed a little differently than they would be if they were in Flagstaff or in Phoenix?
3: Uh, that's a good question. Um, I, I do think that there is an element uh, to pl- protected places like the Grand Canyon uh, that entails more people than are automatically obviously affected by the development. So for example, uh, we're, when we think about protecting places like the Grand Canyon, we're protecting it not just for the local region, but we're protecting it for people who visit from all around the world. And I think that also uh, we have to be thinking more about future generations. I think we do that with all development. or we should be doing that with all development. But I think it's it's a much more pronounced uh, impact of more people that will be affected uh, when they go to these places.
4: So there obviously continue to be proposals and ideas for development, for mining in and around the Grand Canyon. And I wonder if you think that the conversations we have about these projects into the future will continue to be the same as what we've seen in the past, or maybe we'll start talking about these kinds of ideas a little differently?
3: Yeah, it's a very, very good point. Um, I think that uh, they're, in many respects they are uh, a continuation of the arguments of the past. Uh, they're uh, many of the same, but also they are evolving and they're changing. In business
0: news, Casa Grande's most iconic structures known as the domes are being demolished after years of back and forth between Pinal County and the owner of the condemned property. Jill Ryan has the details. After years of repeated fines and orders by Pinal County officials to demolish the domes over safety reasons, it's finally happening. A county official said debris will be removed over the next couple weeks. Built in 1982, the spherical structures were meant to be the headquarters for an electronics manufacturer, but when that fell through, the abandoned buildings became a spectacle for photographers, artists, and even a feature on the Travel Channel show Ghost Adventures. In 2016, half of the largest dome collapsed and the rem- remaining structures had cracks in the concrete. A recent summary judgment gave the county credence to bring the property into compliance. Jill Ryan, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In education news, Arizona Superintendent of Public Instruction Tom Horn gave his state of education address Wednesday afternoon. As Bridget Dowd reports, he gave an update on interest in the state's school voucher program. Addressing the Senate Education Committee, Horn repeated his priorities of bringing traditional discipline back to classrooms, improving test scores, and having armed police officers in every school. Turning to the state's Empowerment Scholarship Account program, Horn said his office has approved about 25,000 overdue school voucher requests from parents.
3: There were 171,000 parents who had applied and who had not heard back, some of them for many months. There were tutors who had serious financial problems because they hadn't been paid. We had a school that had, was in the process of applying for a loan because it couldn't pay its bills.
0: Horn says his office will continue reviewing applications and is offering help over the phone during more hours of the day to make sure parents get prompt responses. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In science news. As the U.S. population ages, the number of people with vision problems and their physical and mental health consequences will grow. But the best vision data for seniors are 14 years old and based on self-reporting and outmoded tools. From our Arizona Science Desk, Nicholas Gerbis reports on a new objective assessment.
3: The JAMA Ophthalmology paper revisits the 2021 National Health and Aging Trends Study of Medicare recipients 65 years and older it pioneered a home vision test that used a tablet. The study finds that more than one in four adults 71 years and older have impaired vision, higher than prior estimates, and that differences follow socioeconomic lines. By all measures, vision degrades with increasing age, lower education, and lower income. Notably, more than one in three adults 85 years and older had near-vision impairment, even though relatively cheap and widely available reading glasses can correct the condition. Nicholas Skurbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: And finally in Fronteras news. US Senators Kirsten Cinema and Mark Kelly were in Yuma Tuesday as part of a bipartisan group of 8 congressional members visiting the border. From our Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick reports. The delegation's first stop was El Paso, a day after President Biden was in the city for a similar visit. In Yuma, lawmakers are meeting with Border Patrol and local leaders like Amanda Aguirre, who leads
3: the Regional Center for Border Health. It's important to understand that we have seen the devastation of many families and the suffering of many families they have gone through you know, gangs and uh, rape or mental health issues uh, as they're
0: making the trip to the border. Aguirre's group has been providing transportation, COVID testing, and other aid to asylum seekers along the Yuma border for more than two years now. She says her center was helping some 500 people per day in December. She hopes this week's visit drives home the need for humanitarian-focused immigration reform from Congress. Elisa Resnick, KJZZ News, Tson, And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.